So good evening, everybody. We are so happy to be back here learning with you this Ells Marnet Risha. This is the second part to symbolism and significance, examining the Yom Kippur service Avodah with Miss Sarah, Sarah Gordon. Um, as you come into the Zoom room, I will invite you to become a panelist. Uh, that doesn't mean you're surprised teaching a shir. It just means that you can join the Zoom room um, with the ability to turn your camera on if you wish, so we can see your lovely smiling faces. And when Miss Sarah invites um, the questions and comments that you'll be able to unmute and ask yourself. Um, so you can click accept when I invite you to become a panelist. Um, when you're not speaking, we just e ask that you, uh, that you keep yourself on mute so that we can hear properly and there's not too much background noise. Um, and of course, comments and questions are always welcome in the chat or if you're joining us on Facebook Live, then in the Facebook comments. Um, I will be sharing the source sheet in the chat or the Facebook comments for people to follow in, along independently if they wish, um, but they will also be shared on screen. And with that, I will pass it over to our incredible teacher. Okay, thank you so much um, to Lily Nas for that introduction. And thank you again to the Drisha Institute and to Rabbi John Kelson for inviting me to, to speak and be part of such a wonderful lineup of speakers um, for El Osman here at Drisha. Um, so with that, we'll, we'll jump in, we'll begin again. Uh, for people who were here last week, you know, it's okay. If you weren't here last week, we're, we're gonna go in a little bit of a different direction, but I will give a little bit of a brief summary. And I hope this will be as interactive as possible. I'll pause every so often for reflection, for comments and questions, and you can always uh, use the chat. So last week, we did an overview um, of the, Avod the Avodah, the Yom Kippur uh, service of the Kohen Gadol. Um, and we spoke about a few things. We addressed the goals of the avoda, um, the goals of the service, the connection to Nadav and Avihu, to our own sons who had passed away. And we explored the question of balancing the times the Kohen Gadol and, and even us uh, can approach the divine uh, opportunities for closeness, for spirituality, while being aware of our humanity, the distance that must exist between us and God, and how to kind of navigate that balance. Uh, we also spoke about Yom Kippur serving as the anniversary uh, for tshuva, for repentance, for the sin of the golden calf, and using that day once a year as an opportunity to ach achieve atonement for the mishkan, for the, the sanctuary, the temple, uh, the mizbeach, the altar. Uh, but we didn't really delve into how atonement for the people is achieved. We spoke about kind of the objects, but we didn't really speak about the people, which for us today is kind of the big, the big pertinent question of what we're trying to, to achieve really uh, throughout the day uh, on Yom Kippur. And really the way in the biblical text that atonement is achieved for the people is through the ritual of the two goats, the, the two sirim. Um, one is to be sacrificed before God and one, uh, the seir mishdaleach, literally the scapegoat, this is the origin of that term, is to be sent away to the desert carrying our sins. And that's what we're gonna focus on um, now. And this, this scapegoat ritual is a strange one. And we're gonna see it stands out um, amongst all the other kind of regular routine services you might find in the Mishkan. And it really raises a lot of questions. I'll raise some, hopefully you'll raise some as well. Um, and our goal for tonight is really to explore these questions, to discuss what is the symbolism existing in this ritual? What's it supposed to evoke? This idea of the scapegoats and what meaning can we take from it to really apply to our own Yom Kippur experience? Um, so with that, let's, let's begin. 
And our first source over here is actually the same first source that we had last week, Vayikra Perik Tetzayin, Vayikra, um, uh, the 16th Perik. But here what I do is I cherry picked the parts that really talk about the scapegoat because we skipped those last week. And that's really what we want to be focusing um, on today. So it starts off, this is source number one. Um, and we're told that Aaron HaKohen, Aaron the Kohen Gadol is going to take two goats as a chatat, as a sin offering for the people. Um, so in Pasuk Chet, Pasuk 8, uh, the underlying part, tells us what Aaron is to do with these goats. So the first thing is to take two lots. Um, we have these two goats, we have these two lots for them. One is going to say that it goes to God, and the other one is going to go to Azazel. Um, Pasuk 10, Pasuk 9, um, so if you, you might think you get chosen to be the seer for God, maybe you're off the hook, but you're not, um, even though it's, I guess, for a more positive thing, the seer for God is going to be sacrificed. Um, and that is the first kind of sin offering sacrifice to God. And the, the goats for which the lot fell, it's to be given to Azazel. It's going to stand alive before God to provide atonement to be sent to Azazel into the wilderness. Um, and we skip again down to Pasuk Chabal, Pasuk 21. We see that Aaron has to, has to uh, lean on the goat that's about to be sent off. And he confesses over this goat that is still remaining alive that's to be sent away. Um, what does he what does he confess? At Kol Avonot Bene Israel, but it's Kolpa Shehem, Lachokatohem, Benatano Tamal Rosha Seir, Vishilach, Biyad Ishaiti, Hamid Barra. So he confesses all the sins of the Jewish people onto the head of this goat, and he sends him a designated person into the wilderness. Benasaha Seir, Lab, it's Kol Avonot, El Eretz Gzeira. And this goat carries, you know, you can, the heavy burden, metaphorical burden of all the sins on his shoulders to uh, this, you know, the translation here from Sapphire is an inaccessible region, Eretz Gzeira, this kind of wasteland, and it is set free into the wilderness. And through this, you know, God will, will atone for us and all of our sins will be purified. So a lot of questions here. So I'd love People want to post questions in the chat. I'm going to share a few of my own. But what, I'm actually going to just so everyone can see the, the text over here again. What jumps out at you? What seems bizarre, strange, confusing, striking about this ritual? Um, I'd love to hear what people think. Um, and feel free to post um, in the chat. Someone posted, it sounds a little Christian, interesting. Um, I'd love to hear a little more, more elaboration, right? But again, it doesn't sound like the normal, normative korbanot, normative, Jewish tradition, if anyone else has questions, feel free, or anything that seems bizarre, you know, feel free to, to jump at, to, to post. Um, I'll post a few questions of my own. Um, first of all, we keep saying this is the Seir La Azazel. This is the go to Azazel. Who or what is Azazel? That hasn't really been, been defined, right? See so kind of clarification here in the chat, right? Right, is Jesus the goat, right, carrying the sins of the people being set, right? Does not, doesn't really sound like what we normally do in Judaism. Sounds very foreign. Um, again, the other question I was asking, who is Azazel? Um, it sounds like we're we're sacrificing, are we sacrificing something here to maybe not another deity, but are we saying that there are other powers in God that require this? Is this who Azazel is? What is happening? Um, you know, what exactly, what exactly is going on over here? Uh, I see more, right, um, more, more comments, right, Corbinot are 
deliberate, right? This is very random. We're even doing a lottery, right? What's what's the chance element? For sure, that was on my, my list of questions, so great. Um, also, can sin literally be put on something and sent away? Like, is that really how we achieve atonement? Don't we need, you know, chuba, repentance? We're just going to dump the sins on a goat, and then, then we're good to go. Um, another interesting thing, nowhere else do we find a sin offering offered by being thrown off a cliff. Chatat, or a sin offering, is offered with different kelim, different, you know, tools. Um, it's sacrificed on an altar. It's sacrificed in the Mishkan or in the Mikdash, in the temple, in the sanctuary. It's not sacrificed outside the camp. Here, it's not even sacrificed. It's just kind of flung, you know, or that's what the mission of the Gemara talks about. It, according to the biblical text, it seems like it's just released. Um, but again, all these questions, who are we sacrificing this to? Who is Azazel? Or what is Azazel? Can we just kind of drop sins on a goat and release it? Um, the randomness. And again, what is this idea that we have a sacrifice that's not sacrificed and it's done It's done kind of outside of the camp. Um, so it's not just us uh, sitting here on this Drisha Zoom that have issues with um, with this ritual, but the rabbis did also, and I want to kind of raise section number two, the problem, um, a couple of the, the different questions that are kind of brought up, and then we'll have a chance to share a few different approaches. So number one, the Gemara source number two, the Gemara in Yuma, Duff, some of Zion, bad, Yuma 67b, um, basically brings up this question and it lists the Seirla Azazel, a scapegoat ritual, as one of the many rituals that the nations of the world or the Satan kind of use to, to challenge our belief system, because these are just rituals that are, by their very nature, confusing, seem bizarre, seem like they have no reason. I'll just read it, right? Zvarim Satan these are matters the Satan and, you know, the translation here says the nations of the world come and challenge and it lists a whole bunch of them. You know, maybe we'll do come back, do shears on the other ones at a different time. But on this list is a sheer Seir HaMishtaleaf, the scapegoat. And then it ends by saying, you know, and if just in case you might think that like these are meaningless acts, they're, they're Masa Tohu Hem, that they're just super random rituals we do that don't have any meaning. That's why the Pasuk says at the end, Ani Hashem, I am God. God gave them to you and you have no right to doubt them. Interesting, because I would say the fact that the text has to go out of its way to say definitely don't doubt these rituals is kind of acknowledging the fact that these are rituals that are our natural inclination when we hear them is to think that they're a little bit bizarre and, and to have a little bit of that doubt. Um, so that's kind of point number one to just kind of flesh out the problem that Chazal, the rabbis, named the fact that this is a confusing and challenging ritual. Um, source number three which is also, um, I think, something that's, that's interesting here, is in the very next parak. we were looking at parak 16 in Vayigra, and parak 17 in Vayigra, we are explicitly told that all sacrifices must be made in the Mishkan, or later on, in the Beit HaMikdash, um, and they're not to be done outside the camp. Everything is supposed to have centralized worship um, in the Mishkan, and that's exactly not what is happening with the scapegoat, right? The Seir Mishdaleaf is being sent kind of outside. Um, right, it says over here in Pasuk Dal or Pasuk Gimel, I was paraphrasing a little bit, right? If you bring a sacrifice, you know, outside of the camp, or you don't do it in the Ohel Moed, you don't do it in the sanctuary, like this is, you'd say you, you, you shed blood, you haven't done a proper sacrifice. All the sacrifices have to be done inside and they're done in a specific way, which is so interesting because we just learned, you know, we have this Sheir Mishaleah, which kind of flouts these rules. And not just that, in um, Pasuk 7, something super interesting over here, 
it kind of gives a reason why are we now centralizing our worship in Pasuk Zion? And so that they should, they, meaning the Jewish people, should no longer offer their sacrifices to the goat demons, um, to the Seirim, the goat demons that they kind of stray after. Also, super bizarre, were these goat demons or people kind of worshiping other deities? Is is that what's going? This this sounds very, you know, similar to what we were just talking about with the Seir um, Azazel. What could this be alluding to? What exactly is happening with the Seir Azazel? You know, or, or who are we sacrificing to in the open? So a lot of problems here. Um, we'll keep going. We're just gonna keep throwing the problems. Then we'll we'll develop some solutions. Um, source number four. We mentioned before. What is the Seir for Azazel? What is Azazel? So the Gemara, the Talmud, is also kind of not really so clear and gives a couple of different options. One is that maybe it's referring to geographical place or description, right? And this is the beginning of source four, Tana Rabbanan Azazel, Shie Az that the word Az from Azazel means rough and hard. And that's where the, the cliff is, that that's what the cliff should be that we're pushing the goat off of. Skip down to their underlying part, Tanya Idak, or, or ta you know, teaching a different varieta. Azazel, Kasheh Shebeharim, it's like the hardest mountain. So first explanation is maybe Azazel is like a geographic description. Later on, Tanan Devei Rabbi Yishmael, school of Rabbi Yishmael taught Azazel, Shemechaper Almase Uzav Azazel. Even stranger, no, really it's called Azazel because this sacrifice or this sending away of the goat atones for the sins of Uzan and Azazel, who were wayward angels back from um, the story in, in, in Genesis and Bereshit. We're going to read about in a, in a few weeks of the Bnei Elohim that sinned with the Benot Adam, the sons of God who sins with the daughters of men. Bereshit Paragvav, stay tuned when it comes up in the Parsha. Um, but, or we, you know, here it's saying that maybe we're atoning for Azazel, is, you know, it's coming from these strange angels. So a lot of lack of clarity around who or what Azazel is. And the, the final kind of challenge or kind of, you know, thing I'll throw into the mix here before we develop our solutions is there actually are a lot of ancient Near East parallels to this ritual. Um, there's a longer article here. You can click on it. I hyperlinked it and I gave um, some extra sources to read um, at the end. This is an article from the Torah.org. Um, we're here, Dr. Ayali Darshan kind of presents, and I just picked two out, but she actually presents many different examples from the ancient Near East, where if you wanted to get rid of something, what you did was you kind of symbolically sent away an animal. And that would kind of, you know, represent what you wanted to physically send away, right? The first one she gives is an indifferent goat ritual here, where there was going to be a royal wedding in a mausoleum, and we have to purify it from kind of the fact that there's, I guess, impurity from the from the dead. So what do we do? We kind of send away a goat, and that kind of brings away the, the impurity. Um, now the king and queen can have their, their wedding ceremony. If you skip down a little bit more, um, another one over here is that if there was a danger that threatened the city and its citizens, um, you know, if something terrible had happened or a city was captured in battle, or perhaps there's a plague, again, we take a goat and we send it away. Um, so again, I'll kind of ask over here, is the Seir Mishdalef, is the scapegoat, you know, that we're reading about in Tanakh, in the same category, you know, is this that, you know, it's fitting into its ancient Near East parallel, it's something that the Jews, you know, at that time would understand, where the Torah speaks in the language of a people. Um, again, is this that like, physically, just something that people did back then, you would kind of dump the sins, just like you would dump impurity onto, onto an animal, and you'd send it away? Or is this symbolism, you know, are we viewing it more as a symbolic approach, but drawing on kind of parallels that people would get from that context? Um, but again, very strange because much as 
there might have been an ancient Near East context. We don't really see any other context for this um, in in the Tanakh. And I see right people, right, Kara. I do want people run up as that's uh, I'm not gonna speak about that so much this year, but there's a lot of kind of parallels here between Para Aduma um, and also the the that's the red uh, the red cow. You know that that's also one of the sacrifices that's done outside of the camp, right? It's also one of the sacrifices that's listed as um, in those lists that make us doubt things. The nations of the world kind of bring up as challenges. So that's a great point. We're going to see a lot of parallels with that as well. Um, the one parallel I did want to bring up over here in source number six is that there is one other time where we have this example of kind of two animals. One is chosen for thing A, and wasn't one is chosen for thing B. Um, and that is with the purification of the Mitsura. The Mitsura is the person who, right, colloquially is known as like the leper, but it wasn't really leprosy. So someone who had a skin affliction, right, and was exiled outside of the camp for a certain amount of, you know, maybe seven days, maybe longer. And now everything's over and they can be purified and they can return to the camp. And it's interesting over here then, Vayikra Paragudal, Vayikra 14, part of the purification ceremony um, in Pasuk Dal, Pasuk 4, is that the Kohen comes and he takes um, um, he takes two live birds. We'll skip to Pasuk Pasuk We'll So basically, you have these two birds. And what happens? One of them um, is slaughtered, basically. And then the other bird that wasn't slaughtered gets dipped, the little gory, into the blood of the one that was slaughtered. Um, it's then sprinkled seven times over the mitsura, over the person with the skin inflection to uh, redeem them. Sorry, not to redeem them, to, um, to purify them. This is uh, in, in Pasuk 7, the last part. And what do we do then after it's kind of used that bird to sprinkle everything? And that bird is set free into the open country. So an interesting parallel here also, where again, you have kind of two birds, and here it's not sins, but almost like the impurity of the Mitsura, the impurity of the person with the skin affliction is, is put on this bird and then not, not kind of like thrown off a cliff here, but again, you know, released a little bit into, into the wild. Um, and again, I think it's here, it's a little bit interesting. It's the inverse, a little bit of the, the scapegoat, right? Here, the, the Mitsura person with the skin affliction is already outside the camp and he's doing the, he or she is doing this ritual so they can return into the camp. Um, but again, there's this idea of, putting something onto one of these birds and then sending it away. And, and again, I'll just wrap up these questions over here that is this literally taking sins, taking impurity, and we view it as that? Is this just symbolism in an ancient Near East context? What is the symbolism? What lessons are we to draw from this? And how can we connect this back to a Yom Kippur, you know, ceremony or, or, or you know, a service that we'll be at uh, in about a week? in uh, 2023 and how do we kind of kind of bring that together so we've kind of raised all these challenges about the Seir Azazel, about the scapegoat and let's see if we can solve some of them so what, what I want to do is I want to present four different approaches uh, to viewing the Seir Azazel, to viewing the scapegoat and we'll pause kind of after some of them to take reflections but please always feel free to post in the chat so the first approach to what this all could symbolize and where this is all coming from um, I gave a little titles. So approach number one is seeing ourselves as the goats. What does that mean, seeing ourselves as the goats? So um, if you look at source number seven, the Mishnah in Yuma, the Mishnah um, on the laws of Yom Kippur, is very explicit when it says that the two goats have to be exactly alike um, before you do the whole kind of uh, lottery, right? Yom Kippurim, mitzvatan They have to be identical in appearance, in height, and in monetary value. 
Um, it's interesting that Rav Hirsch, or Shem Shem Raphael Hirsch, this is in source number eight, um, he has a very kind of poignant um, a commentary on this, and he says the following. He says, each of us is a seir, each of us is a goat, each of us has the power to resist, to be obstinate, the ability to oppose with firmness demands made on our willpower. I'll skip a little bit. We can use it in attachment to God, in being a seir la Hashem, a goat chosen for God, or we can use it in obstinate refusal of all compliant obedience to God and to the demands of his holy laws of morality, dot, 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 here called to Azazel. Um, so here what Rav, Rav Hirsch is kind of saying, which I thought was very powerful, was we should see ourselves on Yom Kippur as just like those goats. You have these two identical goats and they have two paths kind of laid out in front of them. One of them is going to, to God. One of them is going to Azazel. That's how we should be viewing ourselves, that we have two paths laid out in front of us, almost at a crossroads. You can picture like a crossroads on Yom Kippur. And on one hand, you know, we can choose service of God. On the other hand, he plays around with the word of Azazel being, we learned before, it was a hard place, a rocky place, right? It's kind of like obstinate stubbornness, or we can choose stubbornness and we can turn away from God. And we have to choose kind of which path that we want. Um, I always found this, in, in this idea almost of like each goat beforehand could have had the other one's fate, right? It was totally random, um, randomness, which one got the lottery um, of being chosen for God, being chosen for the wilderness. But here we're flipping it, right? Where and we spoke before about like the randomness, the lottery. Here we're saying it's not the lottery with human beings, right? If we're kind of viewing ourselves as the goats, it's the opposite. It's the intentionality. It's the power that we have to make a choice and to choose our path. And it's actually, you know, sounds very similar to a, a Gemara source number nine in Kedushin, which actually the Rambam, Maimonides, you, you might might sound familiar, you might have heard it from Maimonides and the laws of repentance, Hilchot Shubai, says something very similar, um, that what are we supposed to picture ourselves at during the, the 10 days of repentance or on Yom Kippur? You're supposed to view yourself almost like those little scales, that you're 50% guilty and 50% kind of innocent. And one act, whether a mitzvah or a sin, causes the pendulum to sway, right? Either making us um, obligated, obligated in a bad way here, right? Or finding ourselves kind of on the mitzvah side. Um, and I view this, I, you know, it sounded very reminiscent to me of kind of what Rav, um, Rav Hirsch was trying to say here with the goats that, you know, we perhaps, the goats was random, but we have intentionality. We have choice. We should view ourselves as, you know, two paths and one action can kind of have that make a huge difference. As we say, you know, in the davening, you know, prayer, repentance, and charity can really undo um, the decree and kind of seeing the power in that kind of our inverse, you know, we have the choice, the goats, it was random, but we had the choice to kind of impact our decision. So that's the first approach over here. The second approach um, I gave the title as is that we are not defined by our sins. So what do I mean by that? a very powerful idea here by Rav Uriel Etam. He develops it in a couple of articles on the virtual Beit Midrash affiliated with Yeshivat Haaretzion in Israel. And he says the following, and he kind of goes back to that Mishnah we quoted before, that the goats are kind of very similar, you know, when you first start off. And he says, I'll read the quote, um, source number 10. At the start, the two similar goats reflect a simple attitude towards man's sins over the course of a year. Throughout the year, the individual and the people as a whole accumulate good deeds and bad deeds, mitzvot and transgressions, merits, and liability. I'll skip ahead a little bit. Separating the goats on Yom Kippur reveals a deeper perspective than that of the rest of the year. According to this perspective, evil does not define identity and is not an integral part of the person. The goat that Israel offers to God and is brought in before him expresses belonging to God, 
Well, a goat that is sent out to Azazel with the people's sins expresses the fact that sins are not part of human identity, but rather external. As the Gemara states, and it quotes here the Gemara and Sota, a person does not commit a transgression unless a spirit of folly, a ruach shtut, enters into him. So what is Ruriel Etam? I'll scroll up a little bit so we can see the whole source sitting over here. And I thought it was something very beautiful. And he says, for the majority of the year, except for Yom Kippur, we see human beings as a mixture of good and evil, a, a mixture of kind of mitzvot and sins. And what happens when we sin? We have a system. We go, if it's temple times, right? We go and we bring sacrifices and we achieve atonement. Um, today, we would repent. And, you know, those sins are kind of uh, redeemed. And that's how it works. But even though we're redeeming the sins, the sins are still part of us. It's kind of we're mixed up and think about even our normal days. We do good deeds, we do bad deeds, you know, we're flawed. You have that kind of mix. But on Yom Kippur, we go back um, to the core question, right? This is the essential question of, is sin part of the human experience? Are we doomed to sin? Um, are we inherent? We spoke a little bit about this last week about humanity, right? Are we inherently good or are we inherently flawed? And Yom Kippur, during the year, we say, we're both, we're flawed, we do mitzvah, we do sins, but we, we do tshuva, and it's okay, God created tshuva, we have korbanot, sacrifices to kind of undo the sins. But on Yom Kippur, we answer this differently, we say, no, we're actually completely good. Um, and the sins that we do, they're not part of us. They're, they're because, you know, as, as he quotes, you know, the spirit of folly came and convinced us to, or maybe the satan, the evil inclination overcame us, but the sins aren't part of us. Um, and to kind of highlight this, to highlight the fact that the sins are totally external from us, we literally use this symbolic gesture where we take our sins, put them on an animal and send them away. We don't want them to be uh, kind of atoned for the way we normally atone for sins in the Mishkan through sacrifices, at least back, you know, in the time period of the temple. Um, but we're trying to kind of show that things are different. And I think that parallel works today also. Think about everything we do on Yom Kippur, right? We don't eat, we don't drink, we abstain from physicality. We're not even wearing leather shoes. We're wearing all white, right? People try to wear white. Um, you know, it's, a, it's not kind of the custom. We're standing in shul all day. We're literally trying to mimic the angels. You know, we're we're almost like negating our human behavior that we acknowledge and we celebrate the other, you know, 364 days of the year. But Yom Kippur, we're trying to focus on on like our inherent goodness. So kind of part of that's kind of what we're trying to do. It works, you know, or it kind of makes sense that we're trying to highlight that by, you know, sin is external. Sin isn't part of us. Sin is something that we we send away. Um, and this is kind of brought on, and he he quotes actually the Maharal, um, Rabbi Huda Loeb and Betzalel um, of Prague. This is in source 11. I'm just going to read the middle part, right? That like, right? The sins, they don't stem from the souls of the Jewish people. Why do we have sins? Because the Satan incites us it's external, right? It's not even coming from us. It's external since it's not who we are. It's not who we are at our essence. And he explains, and that's why we kind of send it off to the wilderness. Maybe we're sending it to the evil inclination. Maybe that's what Azazel is because we're trying to highlight again that sin is not part of us. On Yom Kippur, we're inherently good. We're we're mimicking the angels. We're going, we're, we're not thinking about our kind of flawed nature. We're taking that one day to focus, um, focus kind of on the good. And it's interesting. He actually takes us in a little bit, takes it deeper um, in source number 12. And he highlights the fact that usually, what do you do with impurities, right? If you want to purify them, you take it to a mikvah, you take it to a body of water, you kind of dunk it in. Um, but it's fascinating. He points out that what do we do with the goat? We kind of send it to a place that's a complete absence of water, right? It's, it's the opposite of a mikvah. I'll just read quotes of over here, right? He says, the most fundamental source number 12 feature of the wilderness is the absence of water. I'll skip ahead a little bit. 
Usually the impure person undergoes a purification process, this being done by way of immersion in water. In Yom Kippur, the goat that bears upon it the sins of Israel, considered like impurity, does not undergo a purification process. Rather, it's sent to a place that is the very opposite of the fundamental elements of the purification process, to the wilderness. We send it to where there's no water. If you skip down a little bit, something I thought was very interesting over here, I want to throw it in also. He says, though, as much as we're sending it to where there's no water, he gives the analogy that, you know, the, the Mishnah in Yuma talks about how, well, you didn't really just send the goat off. You literally like flung it off a cliff and that's how um, it was killed and it's kind of dashed to pieces. Um, and he talks about how like the dashing of the goat to pieces can also be seen as a parallel of immersion in water. I thought this was fascinating, right? Just as with immersion, all the person's limbs come into contact with living water. So to throwing the goat off the cliff and dashing into the pieces, all the goat's limbs come, to, come into contact with the surface of the wilderness, which kills. So we see again, almost like, you know, we're separating the sin from us. We're not doing the usual mikvah, the usual purification, but we're sending it to a place where there's no water. It's getting, you know, it's almost like it's, it's going into the mikvah of the wilderness, you know, and being thrown off of that. Um, but again, I think this comes back to that main idea that in, in opposition to the inherently flawed nature of being human, um, the fact that we're complicated with this mix of good and evil, you know, symbolically once a, year, once a year, we separate the sins to show that it's not part of us. At our core, we want to do good. That's who we are. And that's how we stand before God on Yom Kippur, um, standing kind of anew. Um, I want to pause here and then we'll do the last two approaches. Um, if anyone has thoughts, reflections, comments. Um, see a couple of people uh, wrote over here, right? The goats being identical is interesting, right? Fine line between dedication to God and stubbornness, right? The like, how do we kind of cross each line? If anyone else has any thoughts or anything, you know, moved you or, or questions, you know, about what we just said, um, I'd love to hear them. Interesting. Egla Rufa. Um, so not, not that I saw the Egla Rufa is the um, animal that's sac the sacrificed, um, the hyper, it's kind of like its back is broken or neck is broken um, if a city does not um, kind of protect a traveler. Um, I haven't seen that in the research that I have done. There's a lot of super interesting symbolism behind Egla Arufa also. So feel free to reach out. I can send you some articles on that also, but I, I didn't see like a connection, but I'd love to see um, if, if you know you have thoughts about how to connect. I'd love to see that as well. Um, so to recap kind of what we've had so far, but please feel free to um, yeah, great. <laughs> Thank you, Linus. Um, feel free to kind of post more, more, more comments. So we said so far, we've raised all the questions, right? That kind of exist about Egla Rufa, sorry, about um, Seirla Azazel, about the scapegoat. Um, we shared one approach and maybe we're the goats, right? We kind of have, as opposed to the goats where everything is random, which one gets chosen for God, which one is chosen for Azazel. For us, we have, you know, we should view ourselves 50%, you know, um, good, 50% kind of doomed, I guess, you know, in like one act, it's going to tip the scale and kind of seeing ourselves with that intentionality with those two choices. We spoke again, I thought it was actually very, you know, a beautiful idea by, by Rav Etam, this idea that, you know, usually we're kind of flawed, we're mixed, we're imperfect, but we try to double down on Yom Kippur that no, in Yom Kippur, we're inherently good. That's who we are before God. And we double down this by kind of literally loading the sins onto the goat and sending it away because the sins aren't part of us. We're not trying to kind of atone for the, you know, the usual purification. We're trying to just send them away. They're not part of us. Sin is not part of us in Yom Kippur. That's not who we are um, at our essence. Um, so I want to kind of share two um, final approaches, uh, approaches, which I thought were also super interesting. And, and I'm very curious to see what everyone thinks about them as well. Um, so approach number three is seeing it as a bribe, quote unquote, and I'll leave that in kind of air quotes, 
to the Yetzir Hara, to the evil inclination. And we saw in some of our challenges, some of the way the, you know, the Talmud challenged it and, and, and different approaches that like, what is going on here? You know, is this Seir La Azazel, this goat for Azazel? Are we, are we bribing some kind of lower power in the heavens? What does that mean? You know, we don't really worship anyone besides for God and we don't believe in other powers and how would that influence God anyways? What is going on over here? So the Ramban, Nachmanides, has a super, super, super long commentary where he delves into this. Um, I gave you selections of it. So if you think source 13 is long, you should know this is the truncated version. I cut out a lot. Um, and he starts off by quoting um, Abraham Ibn Ezra. He was also a, a medieval Spanish commentator who has his own approach. And then Nachmanides kind of responds to it. So we'll start with this. And, I, and I'm curious kind of what you think. Um, so we'll start kind of with the, with the underlined part, source 13. Um, and what's interesting is it quotes, you know, Abraham Ibn Ezra. And what he says is the following. He says, if you can understand, and I'll actually, I'll go back and forth, the, the Hebrew and the, the English over here, I'll, I'll read it over here. So Ibnetra says there is a secret here about Azazel, that we're sending it to Azazel. And if you want to know the secret, I will tell you, but you can only find it out when you're 33. So we didn't we didn't ask for ages and people signed up for the Zoom. I guess if you're if you're if you're below 33, then you know you can mute it so you don't hear the secret that you're not supposed to know until you're over that age. But I've, but even as we're kind of loose to it, it's a secret, right? What is a secret? So Ramban kind of is like, all right, let's let's unpack the secret and, and talk about what is going on. So you can see actually in the underlined parts is a little bit cute here, right? The Ramban says, I'm not the tail bearer who's going to reveal this secret of the Ibn Ezra. He's like, because the rabbis already revealed it and it's already known. So what is the secret, this mystery of the Seir la Azazel? So we're going to skip down a little bit over here. And he quotes basically a Midrash, the Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer. Um, actually, the Hebrew is a little bit more up here. So we'll do it over here. Um, in Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer, it says, They would give Samael, who's like the, the evil inclination angel, a shochad, a bribe on Yom Kippur. So he wouldn't annul their korbanot, the korbanot, the sacrifices of the Jewish people. Um, as it says, you know, we give the one sacrifice to God, and then we kind of give a little bit of a bribe to someone else when he stays out of our way on Yom Kippur and doesn't cause trouble and kind of keeps his mouth shut. What is going on over here? So we'll go back to the English over here. Um, it's a much longer midrash, but it basically kind of says that when we give this, this you know, Samael his, you know, his goat, then he basically doesn't just really keep, he doesn't only keep its mouth shut, but he starts praising the Jewish people to God. And it, it goes on for much longer. I gave you a little part of the, the underlined here on page eight that he says, you know, he can't find any sin amongst them. He says, master of the world, Rebono shel olam. you know, the pe Jewish people are like angels, just like angels are barefoot on, on, you know, in heaven, the Jewish people are barefoot, AKA we're not wearing leather shoes. So I guess people are, you know, back then we're barefoot, you know, on, you know, Kippur, the angels don't drink, the Jewish people don't drink, et cetera, et cetera. And when Hashem, when God hears his testimony from their prosecutor, right? The Samael is supposed to be the one kind of getting us in trouble. The fact that he's praising us, then that is what fully achieves atonement and our, our positive verdict is kind of finalized. So that's like the first way of viewing it. It's like this like throwaway bribe to like get the prosecutor kind of on our side. So that's Ramban is quoting that Midrash. Um, then Ramban, is, again, it's a strange midrash. We don't usually give credence or bribes to like what's going on. So the Ramban kind of unpacks this, and he's like, "What is 
what is the secret, right? I'll scroll up so we can read kind of the Hebrew a little bit. And he says, here's a secret. Back in the day, people used to worship other gods, not actual avodazara, idolatry, other gods, maybe kind of, but the other angels, and they would give power to kind of these other angels and bring offerings to them. And God, and sorry, the Torah forbids completely giving them any type of deity or any type of kind of godly power. Um, but God is the one who commands us on Yom Kippur to give this sacrifice to this angel who's in charge of like the, the, the desert. And it's not a korban from us, Halila, like God forbid. And this is really, I'll just read the English over here. Now, the intention in our sending away the goat to the desert was not that it should be an offering from us to it. Heaven forbid. Rather, our intention should be to fulfill the wish of our creator who commanded us to do so. And the way Ramban Nachmanis kind of gets all this to jive, that like on one hand, we have this Midrashic tradition of like, sometimes we bribe these angels on Yom Kippur, you know, to get them on our side. Ramban is clearly uncomfortable with that. And the way he resolves it is, listen, he's like, usually this would be 100% forbidden, but God is the one who's telling us to, you know, offer this Seir Azazel, to offer the kind of the scapegoat. And we do what God says. So it's not idol worship because we're doing what God says. And he goes on, there's a, there's a long um, kind of analogy he gives. Like if someone's having, a king's having a party and he tells you to serve a portion to, a, to one of the people who's there. You give the portion to the person who's there. You're not serving that person. You're serving the king. And that's kind of what we're doing. And he kind of, at the end, doubles down the fact that that's why the Kohen Gadol doesn't choose which goat gets what. It has to be totally random. That's why we don't actually do an actual sacrifice because we don't want anyone to think that, God forbid, we're actually worshiping, you know, this angel, this other power. It's just like a symbolic kind of bribe. Um so I'll leave, I'll leave this here. I want to share one more source, which I thought was super fascinating, takes the Ramban, takes Mahmanis in a totally different way. Um, but I think over here, again, this gets into the symbolism that like on Yom Kippur, you could view it as we're just trying to get through the day, you know, with a positive verdict any way we can. And again, you know, we see Ramban's hesitation. We're not actually worshiping it. We're definitely not worshiping. We're taking it over and over here. We're definitely not worshiping, you know, any angels, not giving them any power. We're doing God's will. But perhaps I would say that there's a symbolism here of almost, you know, you do what you can in Yom Kippur to kind of, you know, weight it in our favor, you know, weight kind of like the, the scales um, in our favor. And perhaps, again, it's like taking whatever symbolism will help us get into the right mindset, almost like we'll take whatever help we could get, even though, again, we see this tension, right? Even the commentators, the Ramban, is very, very uncomfortable with this. You know, they have the Midrash, but he's very uncomfortable with it. Um, interesting side point in uh, Source 14 which I thought was totally kind of like, you know, like, you know, uh, blew my mind when I, when I, when I read it. And this is, again, I, I gave sources at the end, um, articles to read. This is from a book, um, Be'er Miriam. It's kind of like another book by Yeshivat Haritzion, kind of on Yom Kippur. And they quote Rav Tzadok Akona Bublin, who was also uh, a fascinating figure, um, known for kind of pushing the envelope on his, uh, on his opinions, on his approaches, one of the early kind of like uh, Hasidic uh, luminaries, and he says the following on the Ramban, and I'm very curious people think about this. He says, Ikar, this is source 14, And he quotes, it's a famous, or, or kind of, uh, you know, well-known 
uh, Talmudic uh, statement from uh, Yuma 86b that on Yom Kippur, our intentional sins that we did on purpose become our merits. The Gemara goes in one direction, says, yeah, that's when you repent out of love, they become merits, great. He goes in a totally different direction. He says, it's when does that happen that my intentional sins that I did, that I did knowing that they, you know, I know what I'm doing and I'm sinning anyways, become like merits. Um, it's when you realize that everything is very antinomian, kind of like this source, but like when you realize that everything that you sinned was God's will also. Because God wanted you to do this sin. And that's what makes the merits, right? You, you didn't pray one day, you slept through davening because God wanted you to miss your alarm. So really, you did a mitzvah because by by quote unquote sinning, not to say that's you know an actual sin, just for the sake of analogy, God caused all this to happen. So really, you were doing God's will by sleeping through your alarm and not making it to davening. Okay, how does he connect this to the seir lazazel? Skip down a little bit more. Shazes soda seir lazazel. This is the secret, the essence of the scapegoat. Sheilu asahu hadam atzmo haya Because if you randomly decided to like you know, send a goat out to the wilderness to this random spirit, you would be 100% worshiping idolatry. But because in Yom Kippur, we're only doing it because God commanded us to do it. And it's the Ratzon Hashem, it's the will of God. He's the one telling us to send this goat like any other day of the year. This, If you did it on your own, this would totally be this would be idol worship. But the fact that we're fulfilling God's command, this is you know reflected in the Ramban. He quotes the Ramban here, right? Um, look at the Ramban's commentary, right? The Ramban says, like, no, no, definitely not idol worship. It's totally fine because we're doing what God commanded. Um, here, Ratsadaka Cohen takes it in a total kind of different lens and says, Yeah, just like with the scapegoat, if you did it randomly on your own, it would be a sin. But when you do it when God commands it, it becomes a mitzvah. So too, our actual intentional sins, once you realize you only did them because it's the will of God, those sins also become mitzvah. Definitely not normative, you know, uh, a Jewish thought over here, but fascinating. And just as a foil, I brought um, source 15, the rational, you know, Maimonides to kind of be the foil to this, right? Who would not have this approach? The, Ram the Ramam says very clearly, um, and the laws of repentance, Shuva, um, source 15, Rashut the Kola Damna Tuna, Imratzalaha Totatmol Devar Tov, Leo Tzadik, Rashut Biado, Imratzalaha Totatmol Derech Harav, Leo Rasha, Rashut Biado. All of us have free will. If you want to sin, you sin. You want to do a mitzvah, you do a mitzvah. No, God is not pulling the strings here. We have complete free will, we have complete responsibility over our actions. Um, so I want to share this, first of all, as, you know, just the idea that Nachmanis, Ibn Ezra struggle with in the Midrash, right? That like, are we kind of hedging our bets and we're like symbolically, yeah, we'll give bribes to like lower powered angels or are we like total alarm up, you know? No, 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 that sounds idol worship. We're super uncomfortable with this. We're only doing it because God is commanding it, but there's still this real discomfort with that ritual um, to kind of where Rapsado Kakoan takes it to the, you know, other extreme that like almost the absence of free will, you know, God's pulling the strings, even with our sins. When you have the opposite approach of Maimonides, they're like, no, all this is about free will. We always have free will. We can choose. And I think it's an interesting just the position of the approach we shared before, right? Where first says, you know, view ourselves as the goats. You have those two paths. 
but you make the choice. We have the power. The goats are random. The goats have the, the goral, you know, like the, have the lottery. We have, we have destiny. We can choose, we can choose our, 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 um, you know, our destiny while we see here, this idea that, well, do we have free will or not? And how does that play into the goats? And I think that like another, it's another big essential question for us to kind of reflect on, you know, like how does free will uh, and determinism kind of play into this idea of repentance, of atonement, of this entire ritual? Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll pause here. And I see kind of more comments right Angela Rufa, which is great. Um, and I'm gonna share one final approach in the last 15 minutes that we have. Um, but if anyone has comments kind of on this, also, because I think it's kind of, you know, you have those two foils, right? Do we have, like, it's almost comforting to say, yeah, like I sent all my sins away on that goat and I even bribed the angel and now we're totally set for Yom Kippur. It doesn't matter what I did during the year, I'm getting atonement. Or, you know, kind of for later commentaries, we also see, you know, the, the principles in the Torah of um, free will and of responsibility, right? God always saying to us, you don't even have to go to the Gemara, even the text, you know, like, we have different ceremonies and the different mountains where God says, are you going to choose the blessing or are you going to choose the curse? And we know in all the narratives that are interdispersed amongst all the, the legal texts, right? In the Chumash, in the, in, the, in the Torah, that free will and kind of, you know, Tanakh characters being held responsible for their actions is a pretty big theme. And, and kind of how do we balance that around the scapegoat ritual and, and what our mindset should be on Yom Kippur? Is it that, you know, we have total free will and it's up to us? Or is it that like, okay, I sent away the goat, you know, we have these kind of comforting rituals that hopefully are, are, are saving the day and, and how do we balance that? Um, yeah, so, so right, interesting. Also, right, right, Ozzy quoted, right, the, the uh, in Kabbalah, right? Like, is it really ourselves, right? It may, maybe what, what is that? We could view it as Azazel uh, as well. Um, and a lot, a lot to think about. So the time that we have left, I wanna share one final approach, which I found super interesting, um, which is that perhaps, the Seir Lazazel, a scapegoat ritual, is also sending us back uh, to Sefer Bereshit, to the book of Genesis. And by sending us back, I mean that there are a lot of parallels between the Seir Lazazel and some of the narratives of kind of choosing whenever we have like a duo, whether it's two sons or whether it's kind of like two candidates, who's being chosen and who's not being chosen. Um, a lot of kind of like that theme reflected in Sefer Bereshit, where we can find parallels to Seir Lazazel. So I want to kind of like quickly kind of explore that. And then the always the question is like, okay, why? Like what's the message of kind of this parallel? Um, so, right. So let's look at this final approach. So first of all, what's interesting, um, I want to start off with Yaakov and Esau because that's really the, the biggest parallel. And then we'll kind of expand it to Sefer Bereshi as a whole. So this is not, you know, you can see this in different articles, again, from the virtual Beit Midrash, Mishibat Haritzion, but this, are, this is already reflected in the Midrash. So in source 16, the Midrash and Bereshi Rabbah, um, this is where um, the, fa the, the famous story where, you know, Yaakov, Jacob dresses up as his brother Esau to, to uh, I'm going to use the word steal, but, you know, it's a whole debate, you know, kind of save this for another sheer on Sefer Bereshit, um, where he kind of dresses up as him and tricks his blind father Yitzchak into giving him the bracha, the blessing that was really meant for Esau. And the way he does this is by cooking these, this meal of goats to kind of, this was the, the meal that Esau, the hunter, would always bring Yitzchak. So, um, Yaakov comes and he makes it, you know, it's his mom, it's, you know, Rivka is the one telling him what to do. Um, so Yitzchak tells him, go get the shteg die izim, go bring the two goats, right, for me for a meal, and then I will bless you. Tovim, what does it mean, these two good goats, right? So Midrash, as Rabbi Chalbo says, Amar tovim lecha, 
It's going to be good for you because if you bring me this meal, these two good, you know, this, this meal of the goats, you're going to get the bracha. And it's also going to be good for your descendants. Through them, the two goats, the Seir La Hashem, the Seir La Azazel, you'll be atoned for on Yom Kippur. And I'll use this midrash basically just to kind of see that already that connection is drawn between Yaakov and Esav and that story um, and the two goats on Yom Kippur. But let's get a little bit deeper. And Rabbi Yakim Krumbine takes it and he, and he starts listening. I thought this was fascinating. All the parallels from the story of Yaakov and Esav that reflect back into uh, the whole scapegoat ritual. And he says, for example, Yaakov's entrance into his father's room, um, waiting for a blessing, reminds us of the Kohen Gadol entering the Holy of Holies. Moreover, Yaakov wears special clothes for the occasion, just as the Kohen Gadol, right? Yaakov dresses up as his brother Esav. He has like the, the hair stuck on his, you know, the, the skins kind of stuck on his on his arms. And Yitzchak notes the smell of my son, which may parallel the Ketorets, the incense which we spoke about last week. Um, and we'll skip ahead a little bit. So both Yaakov and Esav are like two goats, only one of which will enter the Kodesh, the, the sanctuary, their father's room, and receive a blessing. Skip down a little bit more. And like the two goats, the brother's fate hang on a thread. Only one will receive the blessing, analogy, sacrifice to the Lord, and the other one will be cast out, analogy, to Azazel. Yaakov meets Esav again later on in Genesis and Sefer Bereshit, and even there one might find parallels to the Avodat Yom Kippurim, to the service. Um, this is when Yaakov is returning from exile um, at his uncle's house, and he's nervous. Esav comes with the 400 men. Is he going to attack him? Um, and Yaakov pacifies his brother with gifts comprised of herds of animals. The scapegoat sell to the wilderness is also often viewed as a gift. We just spoke about that, right, to the Seirim, right? Um, Esav is, right, lives in the land of Seir. He's also hairy, Se'ar. There's a lot of linguistic parallels, right, of Esav here as well. So it should not surprise us to find that Yaakov's first gift to Esav is a flock of goats. So again, right, you see a lot of parallels from this story to the scapegoat. Um, it is interesting, though, like, if we want to talk about rejection, right, like one Seir, one goat being chosen for God and one being rejected to the wilderness, it seems at first that Yaakov is chosen. He's the one who gets the blessing and Esav is rejected. But if you read the story, then, you know, everyone's so nervous what Esav is actually going to do to Yaakov. Yaakov is actually the one that's then sent away into exile for many, many years, right, to his uncle's house. And he never really, you know, sees many, you know, maybe his family members again until he's able to return um, many years later. Um, and in fact, this parallel of kind of like two brothers, you know, being, you know, up for the chosen, who's going to be chosen, one is chosen and one is rejected, is actually a theme throughout Safer Berry Sheet. Um, you know, uh, often talked about like pro, um, the law of promogenitor, right? Like who's going to be chosen? We kind of go through this over and over again in Safer Berry Sheet. Um, one idea we'll just talk about this kind of outside is Yitzchak and Ishmael are also kind of two people who are up for the, for the coveted spot of who's going to be the, the son of Abraham through which the chosenness continues, right? Through which the, the blessing kind of continues and who's the one who's going to be sent away. Both Yitzchak and Ishmael have almost parallel, this is a different shiur, but have like almost parallel sacrificial stories or um, Akeda stories. We know the very famous one of Yitzchak, right? Almost being sacrificed on Har Moriah. Um, but if you look at Bereshit um, 21, when Yishmael is kind of thrown out of the house, when Sarah's had enough and she tells Abraham, get Hagar and get Ishmael out of this house and send him away. There's a lot of similar language that we see that Abraham is very hesitant. He doesn't want this. Um, 
you know, the, the Midrash or on Pirkei Avot actually talks about this was one of Abraham's tests that he felt about Ishmael almost the same way he felt about Yitzhak. He didn't want to cast him out. If you look at Pasuk 14 in Source 18, Vayishkem Avraham Baboker, Vayikach Lechem, Vechomotz Mayim, Vayitenel Hagar, Vesetamal Shechma, um, that Avraham, you know, takes bread and a skin of water, he gives him to Hagar, he puts it on her shoulder. Um, and he sends him away and they wander off in the desert. A lot of parallels here. First of all, it sounds like Abraham going to sacrifice his own son. Um, we see the parallels of kind of wandering in the desert. We see the word, the linguistic parallel of shalach, of being sent. And again, kind of that very, very similar um, language. Um, again, we kind of, and we see it actually even later on, source 19 over here, even later on with Abraham, other sons that he has with his concubines, he gives them gifts and he sends them away because Yitzhak is the one who's going to be chosen um, so why do we have, why have kind of like this power? What's the, what's the lesson? What's the takeaway over here? Um, so if Jonathan Feintuch in, in, in an article on this, he develops this very beautiful idea. And he says the following, the theme of Sefer Bereshit is that Jewish people are being chosen, but it's kind of, it's, it's a process. Whenever someone is being chosen, someone else is being rejected. And along with that rejection comes a lot of pain and, and suffering. Esav is, 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 you know, is, is distraught at the fact that he lost the blessing and that he isn't the one that's going to be chosen. Yishmael kind of picks himself up. He makes a life for himself, but it's it's a, it's a very difficult parrot, a very difficult chapter to read. But the suffering of Yishmael is suffering of Hagar, who has to watch her son almost die in the desert after they're kind of thrown out of Abraham's family. And uh, Refaintoff says that, you know, on Yom Kippur, we're highlighting a lot of our chosenness. You know, that's kind of one of the big themes of when we're asking God um, to forgive us. So we're like, you chose us, we're your people, you know, we're the people that work for you, please forgive us. But maybe we have to acknowledge that with that chosenness came people not being chosen. And with that came pain and suffering. And that also requires atonement, which I thought was such an interesting idea. And we atone for that through the Seir Azazel, through kind of mimicking the fact that certain people had to be pushed out of the family for the Jewish people to, for the, you know, Yitzchak to be chosen, for Yaakov to be chosen, you know, Yishmael got tossed out, um, Esav got tossed out, it came at a cost, and it came at a price, um, and we have to kind of acknowledge that even if it was necessary, and you could view this a little bit with the with the blessings as well, right, how Yitzchak, how Yaakov gets the blessing, but he ends up paying for it, right, he tricks his father, and then he's later tricked by his sons, there's a cost, and we get to that through, or we atone for that through um, the two goats, um, and the last parallel that I'll bring over here, which is interesting, is we see this parallel again um, between the two goats and another story in Sefer Bereshit and the story of Yosef and his brothers. Here, you know, we have a situation where all 12 brothers are going to end up being chosen, the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, but with the favoritism that Yaakov shows Yosef, the other brothers get very suspicious. And they're like, wait a second, is he going to be chosen? And the rest of us are going to be tossed out. And as we all know the story, right? They decide not to kill him at the end, but they throw him into the pit. Um, you know, there's a couple of parallels over here. You know, we see again, let's throw him into the into one of the pits. Um, they throw him again into the pit. The pit is empty. This idea of kind of like a barrenness that he's being thrown, shalach, that word again, being thrown into. And again, how do they cover up their crime? They dip his coat into the blood of Seir Izim. So again, we spoke last time how Yom Kippur perhaps atones for the sin of the golden calf. But I think it's interesting that perhaps this connection of the stories of Bereshit, especially the story of Joseph um, and his brothers, 
as another kind of essential huge sin that we did, right? The sin of, of Sinachina and the sin of, of, of brotherly hatred. Um, you know, perhaps that's what we're alluding to, what we're trying to atone for. Like we send away the Seir, just like what that's what we did to Yosef. And I and I showed kind of in our almost last source over here, source 21, in the Machsar um, on Yom Kippur, before we read the, um, there's a little bit ahistorical when we talk about the 10 martyrs, but they didn't all die at the same time. But, you know, for, for powerful effect, you know, that's kind of all put together. Um, the way that the 10 martyrs is introduced, that the Roman Empire, emperor kind of takes the sages and he tells them, you know, he asks them the hypothetical question, like, what, what's the punishment for someone who sells, kidnaps someone and sells them for the price of shoes? And they're like, oh, like, you know, he should, he should be put to death. And they're like, well, the emperor says, that's actually the Jewish people, because you did that to Joseph and you never paid for it. So now I'm going to make you pay for it. So we, we have that link to the sin of Joseph also in the Moxer, also here. Um, so to kind of wrap up with a few minutes left, I want to kind of bring everything together. And I'm happy to say on people have questions. Um, we spoke about all the difficulties with the sin of the golden cow, with the, with the, the scapegoat ritual. We saw how it doesn't really fit into a framework of normal corporate notes. Even the rabbis had issues with it, kind of what's going on with these near, ancient Near East parallels. Um, and we gave a few approaches, right? We gave four. We spoke about the fact that we try to see ourselves as the goats, that we have choice. We have intentional choice that can change our destiny. Um, we saw the idea that we're trying to highlight the fact that 364 days a year, we're a mix of good and evil, sin and mitzvot, and we purify that through tshuva and through korbanot. But on one day on Yom Kippur, we say sin is separate from us, and we send it away to the wilderness, and we kind of return to our pure roots and try to be on the, the highest possible level that we can. We spoke about the idea that, you know, are we kind of bribing some angel and the real discomfort that comes from that, whether it's, you know, um, our responsibility for our actions and free will versus kind of putting it in the hands of others. And finally, we saw that how this alludes to the stories of Bereshit, either the stories of, you know, Yaakov being chosen over Esau, Yitzchak over Ishmael, and perhaps it atones for, you know, chosen comes at a price and we're kind of paying, serve, you know, we're trying to show that we, we, we want to make up for any pain that came with that. Or with the story of selling Yosef, that like that you know main key essential sin that came from from ripping the brothers apart. Um, we see unfortunately today, right, still continues with sinachinam with brotherly hatred, um, and how we want to kind of atone for that, especially when that's highlighted in the Yom Kippur service. And I wanted to end actually not with really a Torah source, but with um, this is source twenty two, and I, I hyperlink the song, a song by an Israeli singer. Uh, Hanan Ben Ari. It's a really beautiful song. I encourage everyone to listen to it. It's called Cholem Kmo Yosef, Dreams Like Yosef. Um, as you read through kind of the story um, over here, like the song lyrics, um, he basically talks about how all, each of us can really place ourselves in the shoes of all of the moments of biblical history. All of us were sold like Yosef. All of us were thrown out of Gun Aden. All of us almost sacrificed our sons. And it's this very beautiful, powerful song. Um, but this really resonated with me as, as a powerful way to kind of end this she-or and end our learning together because at its core, I think the scapegoat uh, ritual is really about symbolism, right? Are we the goats to kind of paraphrase the song and add a lyric? Like, are we all sent to the wilderness to a certain extent, right? Do we all feel like Yaakov or maybe Esau sometimes that we're, we're rejected, that we're sent away, that we're the ones carrying, uh, carrying sin? Or do we feel that, you know, we're the ones that are absolved from sins? You know, we, we want it to be that we're sending something away and, and that's what we want to experience, you know? Um, or are we the goat that goes before, you know, and another lyric to the song, like, are we all the goat that goes before God? Like the one that symbolizes choosing chains and cho choosing a, uh, closeness to God and the power over our actions. And I think as much as the randomness is reflected, we spoke about this originally in, in the lottery, 
um, of the goats, the message to us uh, really is the opposite, that we can change our fate, we can choose between paths, we can have uh, you know, multiple options, but we can be empowered by free will and choice. We are, but we also are not the goats in the story, right? And we can take that in different ways. And, and with that, I hope that I shared some new and interesting approaches to the to the two goat rituals, uh, ones that will make the avoda service more meaningful to you. I added some further reading here at the end, so feel free to, to dig in if you're looking for something to read, uh, you know, as part of the Moxer uh, on Yom Kippur. Um, and any reflections or thoughts, please feel free to send me an email, and I'd love to I'd love to be in touch. Thank you again so much to Drisha for inviting me. Um, I'm happy to stay on. People have questions. Um, thank you. Thank you so much. And everyone should have a Gemara Katima Tova, be inscribed in the Book of Life and have a, a meaningful and uh, a spiritual Yom Kippur. Wow. Thank you so much. This was a really great class and I feel so much more prepared for Yom Kippur now. Um, and thank you to everyone in our learning community for your participation and your questions and comments. Um, our Elul Zman here at Drisha is wrapping up. So we have the final sessions of some really exciting classes um, with Rabbi Silber, with Rabbi Kelson, um, and many more on the prayers of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Um, on Sukkot, on the Piznetz Karebi, and on Tashlich. You can find the more information on all of those classes um, and registration at 5783.drisha.org slash um, So I hope to see you all again here soon and Shana Thanks everyone, Shana